Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm back to talk more about our Book of Common Prayer and related topics. And um, I showed you last week, um, I brought show and tell, <clears throat> a 1549 prayer book, uh, a 1662 prayer book, and a uh, 1928 prayer book. The prayer book comes in all sizes and shapes. This old beat up one um, is a prayer book, but it is also the complete Bible in it as well. Great for visitation. Um, a larger version of the prayer book, which also has a hymnal. And uh, they're coming all shapes and sizes. If you remember, for those of you here last week, I went through, beginning with the 1549 prayer book, which was the first prayer book uh, after the break from the Roman church. And uh, I read to you the colic for the first Sunday in Advent. And then I took the 1662 prayer book, which is the one still in use in England officially, and I read you the colic for the first Sunday of Advent, and it was the same. And then the 1928 prayer book uh, of the Episcopal Church for the first Sunday in Advent was absolutely the same colic. And then I read to you the colic for the day for last week in our current prayer book, um, uh, let's see, 1972, 78 prayer book. 79. 79. They wrote it in 78. <laughs> 79. 79 prayer book. Uh, and it was the same. And I wanted to show the continuity from Cramner to uh, Marion Hatchett and Charlie Price, who were instrumental in getting us our new prayer book that we have. I still call it the new prayer book. But guess what? I can't do that this morning. I can't go back to the 1549 and read you the collect in the 1662 and the 1928 and then go to the 1979 prayer book because the 1979 prayer book has a new collect. It's a new colic. It is actually a colic plagiarized from the Diocese of Southern India. And uh, it is very similar to uh, one of the Easter Day colics that we currently use in the 79 prayer book. Um, but anyway, uh, that's where it came from, and it's new. I told Father Joe that I would be committing multiple heresies this morning, and he said he was going to keep count. Uh, I'm thankful he only has ten fingers. <laughs> Last week, uh, I just gave you a very superficial look at the prayer book, and what I want to do this morning, and, and every, there should be prayer books on almost all the tables, uh, I want to go back to the historical documents section and go back to the... Articles of Religion it starts on page 830, I mean 867, and talk.
talk a little bit more about them. I won't run it in the ground. Uh, we had a little fun with some of the language, which was just off-putting um, in some ways last week. Again, these articles of religion were composed by the English church because they wanted to let the world know, and by the world, specifically the Roman church, and those who were reformed, they wanted to let them know where the English church stood. So uh, some of their language is a little bit forceful. Now I wanted to, if you will, uh, last week I mentioned on page 868, it names the, the canonical books that are accepted by the English church. Uh, also the books between the Testaments, um, which we call the Apocrypha, uh, and the, both New and Old Testament books that were received. Um, down at the bottom of page 869 is an important issue that I'll go back to a little bit. And it's still an issue that is contentious in the Christian world today. And it's contentious in our own church today. And there are as many opinions on it as there are Episcopalians. And that is uh, Article 10 of Free Will. Now, the English church... From the very... Get my ticket ready. <laughs> Get your ticket <laughs> ready. The English church very early on, um, because of the Celtic influence on worship, um, was, was a very in, inward-focused, individualistic kind of um, theology and spiritual life. Um, and so very early on, uh, there was a widespread feeling within the church, still the Roman church, but in England, that, the, uh, that individuals were important. And there, were, there, were, uh, there was a controversy very early on when St. Augustine was writing um, in Hippo in northern Africa. Uh, there was an Englishman, Pelagius, in, uh, in England who was writing about free will. And, and uh, they... They feuded a little bit, and their disciples feuded for, and still are feuding, over whether the issue is, can grace be refused? Does man truly have free will? Um, and uh, that issue doesn't have a specific answer. We all have opinions on it. Um, C.S. Lewis, who was a lay theologian and author that many of the tales of Narnia and um, other books um, that children would use, but also some very profound um, books on our faith, um, said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And it was his position that people chose to go to hell. They chose to turn their backs on God and separate themselves from God, and that's what they got. Now, do we truly have true free will? Can we deny grace? I won't pretend that I know the answer to it. It was an issue in 1549 when this was written, and it continues to be an issue. Um, <clears throat> we're pretty consistent uh, in the articles of um, articles of faith with the uh, Lutherans over in Germany. 
uh, looking at Article uh, 12 of Good Works. Um, then uh, there was another one I wanted to point out to you before we move on. I think I pointed out to you last week that um, the Roman Church, uh, under Article uh, 28 um, of the Lord's Supper, that the English Church was here rejecting in this article of faith transubstantiation, that is, the actual physical change of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. Um, again, this is what they wrote. Transubstantiation in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture. It overthroweth the nature of a sacrament and hath given occasion to many superstitions. Now, <clears throat> how many attended the uh, 8 o'clock service here this morning? Okay, in, in, the, in the right one, in the right one version of the Holy Eucharist, uh, actually in the prayer of consecration, it talks about the sacraments being rightly received. That's what the priest at one point is praying for, that these elements, these, um, the bread and the wine be rightly received. And the reason is that the English church held that it was the body and blood, the actual physical body and blood of Jesus when it was rightly received by a contrite heart. So we're very close to our kissing, kissing cousins, the Romans, but we're not quite there. It has to be rightly received for it to be actually the body and blood of Jesus. Um, And on, um, go over to the next page on 874, uh, Roman numeral 30. Um, in the 1850s, if you were a Roman Catholic and you went to church, you got the bread. You didn't get the wine. And the English church was very, and that was reserved for clergy. The wine was. And they very... Uh, emphatically insisted that lay people should get both the body and blood, the bread and the wine. If you skip down to Roman numeral 34, it talks about the traditions of the church. And it says it is not necessary that tr the traditions and ceremonies be in all places one or utterly alike. For at times they have been diverse and may be changed according to the diversity of the countries, times, men's manners, and so that nothing be ordained against God's will. Um, one of the big issues that led to the English church uh, separation from the Roman church was the fact that worship was conducted in Latin. Now, the educated in, in the English 
the British Isles. They understood Latin. They were schooled in Latin. Uh, but the common people had not a clue what was being said. It was also illegal uh, and a punishable crime if the Holy Bible be translated into English. It must also be in Latin. And um, <clears throat> that was... Um, there were English Bibles floating around before the separation, but they were underground um, publications that were published illegally and, and um, distributed illegally. Um, so these are the things that those early English churchmen, and I say churchmen because women did not have a role in 1549, um, and any questions about these? Uh, go and read them. They're really interesting. Yes? On the transubstantiation. So isn't that where there was a problem where, where they were considered cannibals? And that's, that was a, a real tipping point for some believers? Um, I, I, you know, the, through, through time, people looking in at the church... Uh, made that accusation, but I don't really believe that people seriously thought it. It was more of a, it was more of a, um, a criticism of Christians than a real belief. I mean, they knew that Christians weren't eating bodies and, and real blood, um, and they failed to see the symbolism, but they made fun of, if you will, or ridiculed uh, Christians for that belief and, and called them cannibals. But I'm not aware of instances where, where, where they really believe. The earliest, earliest centuries, like the very, very early church, yeah. but, but not, not in Yeah, not in this time, yeah. So what is the difference for the, the beliefs between, so one believed it was actually the body and blood and the other thought it was symbolic? The, the Roman church thought that when the priest held out his hands and he touched the bread and wine, that they actually physically, at the molecular level, became the body and blood of Jesus. Now, the English church believed that they were the actual body and blood of Jesus only when they were rightly received by a contrite heart. And what, what I mean by that is if somebody, the worst sinner in Mandarin, comes to the communion rail and receives the bread and wine, what is he getting? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. The most devout and contrite Christian in Mandarin comes to the communion rail. What are they getting? The actual body and blood. As they partake of it and it becomes their body, it is his body. The best way I can explain it. But that doesn't occur outside the body. That's once it's consumed and the believer's belief is sincere, it mystically changes its chemical properties. When, 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 when it's rightly received, yes. I can't tell you at what point it becomes. But how many heresies did I commit in that? He ran out, he, he ran out of scores on the clicker. Jesus was all together when he gave it to his yes. apostles and saying, this is my body, this is my yes. body. He was still complete and whole. Yes. So yes. that change 
happened after they consumed that body, the blood, I mean the wine and the bread, <clears throat> on a mystical level, I would think, because Jesus was still sitting there. Yes. He, he, had, he had not been to the cross yet. All right. Yeah. And he was setting the stage for the future. Right. Right. I get you. I mm -hmm. see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> I'm sorry? That it would be transubstantiation If it's rightly received. Yeah, after his death. Um, well, again, that's where we differ as an English church from the Roman church. The Romans believe that it is the body and blood the minute the, the priest consecrates it. English church believes only after it's received rightly. Which is why we're English. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Um, while we're still back on historical documents, I just want to point you in the direction of something that maybe you could take a look at at home and we could talk about a little bit more uh, next week because we'll continue this next week um, if I find it. I should have marked it. It is on page 845. 845. Now this is relatively new uh, to our prayer book uh, in its current form. And it is a question and answer catechism. Um, it is an outline, if you will. That's what the, the headline is. Outline of faith on the major issues of what we believe and why we believe them. And it's really, um, it's really informative. Um, talks about human nature, talks about God, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, um, sin, um, which is over on page 848. I just want to stop there for a moment because I found this... <clears throat> um, informative for me personally. What is sin? Sin is the seeking of our own will instead of the will of God, thus distorting our relationship with God and other people and with all creation. So when we sin, not only do we interrupt our connection to God and block that off, but at the same time, we've, we've blocked off the relationship with other people and with God's creation. That is a state of sin. Sin isn't necessarily the act that is committed, but it is the result of the act that is committed if it is your will instead of God's will. And I, I just, I, I've always thought since the first time I read it that that was, was really profound. Um, I'm not going to belabor and go through each of these, but I would encourage you to this week, and, and we, can, we can deal with um, questions uh, after you've had a chance to go through it. Over on page 851, we talk about creeds. What creeds uh, do we, as Episcopalians, subscribe to? Uh, that You know, if you go and you look online at, at some, some Protestant non-denominational churches, They'll have on their webpage a statement of what they believe. 
kind of a declaration of where they stand. Um, well, you won't find that on, on, on an Episcopal or Church of England website. Um, but you will find it in worship because we use two primarily, but we're also authorized to use a third. The Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient creed that was used to train people for baptism. We use the Nicene Creed, which was the creed that uh, was forced, and I think I told that story last week, where uh, Constantine called all the bishops in the world together, and I'm talking the known world around the Mediterranean. <clears throat> he brought them to a place called Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, and then he surrounded the city with his troops and said, y'all can't go home until y'all come up with something that you agree with. Because there were all of these different beliefs about the nature of God, about the nature of um, the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And some people believe that, that Jesus was certainly... Um, he was divisible. Uh, like an egg, had a yolk and a white, and some of it was divine and some of it wasn't. And I mean, there were all kinds of different beliefs about the divinity of Jesus, or even if he was divine. There, there are churches today, um, just to name one, uh, the um, the Watchtower people that um, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, don't subscribe to the divinity of Jesus as being divine. Um, there are some non-denominational churches that baptize both adults and children only in the name of Jesus. And as Anglicans, as Episcopal Church, we have a Trinitarian baptism where we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, which is true to our kissing cousins in the, the Roman Church and in the Greek Church. Both do the same. Um, and I forgot where I was going with that. But, um, talks about the church, ministry, uh, prayer, and worship. And then it talks about the sacraments. Uh, yes? You had mentioned the third creed. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you. Uh, the creed of Athanasius uh, was the third creed. And it is super long. Uh, and that's why it's not used a lot. Uh, <laughs> But and I think it I think it is actually in here in the historical documents. Uh, it's on page 852. 852. I recognize. Oh, right. yeah. It's actually. Um, oh, you're the actual thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, How is it different? It is here. Oh, it's in on 864. How is it different? It's a, it's a very theologically dense. Yeah, it is. It is heavy duty. Um, I tell you what, uh, I haven't read it in a long, long time. Y'all read it, and I'll read it, and we'll come back and we'll have a discussion next week if you want to on it. Uh, but it is uh, also one of the three creeds that our church uh, subscribes to. Again, liturgically, it's long. Um, and I lost my place. I was at the sacraments. 
The, um, the part on sacraments divides the sacraments in two different ways. It talks about um, two sacraments and five sacramental signs. Now, I don't know and I have never spent a lot of time thinking about where I stand on that particular issue. They call the two sacraments that Jesus Christ instituted himself sacraments. Um, Baptism, where he went down to the river, sought his own baptism, and John... um, And the, the, the second is the Holy Eucharist, or Great Thanksgiving, um, Holy Communion, being which he instituted at the Last Supper. Now the others are <coughs> sacramental signs, if we can split that hair, um, things that evoke... Now keeping in mind a sacrament is something that has a meaning beyond itself. When you see an octagonal sign that's painted red... Um, even if the letters are faded, you know that it's a stop sign because that, that just rings a bell. That's, that's what it is. Well, there are other signs that we see in life, uh, such if, if you're British, you know that if you see a circle, um, you know that the underground, it's an underground station. Um, arrows pointing. Uh, some type of sign with a slash through it means not to do whatever is is pictured there. Well, sacraments, and this is just a very primitive way of me describing it, are supposed to evoke for us that glory of God which that symbol uh, represents to us. And I'm I'm saying it clumsily. But when we see, for example... um, The Eucharist, which is what we're most familiar with, or baptism. We understand that that was instituted by Jesus and intended for us to do as Christians, as his followers. Um, And we're to do that. One of the Eucharistic services actually calls it a memorial of his uh, Last Supper. A sacramental sign is is supposed to do the same thing. The difference is Jesus didn't institute it. It was instituted by man following Jesus' death. Such things as uh, holy matrimony, um, ordination, um, confirmation, uh, unction uh, are all, for example... um, I carry in my pocket a little vial and in it I have consecrated oil uh, that I use for unction uh, when I go to visit somebody in the hospital. Uh, It's for the laying on of hands for the sick. Um, And I'll say a prayer or something to the effect of Uh, As you are outwardly anointed with this oil, may you be filled with our Lord's Spirit, and may that Spirit bring to you healing, and so on and so on, depending on the circumstances. Uh, Again, Jesus was a healer. And what we're trying to do is to 
evoke His presence, His power uh, in our prayers. Um, any questions? So how, how am I doing on the heresy count? <laughs> you're, you're good. Okay. Um, um, anyway, um, Holy Baptism and Eucharist were instituted um, by Jesus. Um, it talks about Christian hope. What is Christian hope? It's a word we, we throw around as, as Christians. Uh, the hope that I have in my Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the Christian hope is to live with confidence and renewness, uh, in newness and fullness of life and to await the coming of Christ in glory and the completion of God's purpose for the world. Um, there's some really wonderful stuff in the, um, in the catechism. Any questions on that? So everybody's going to go home and read it through? That's your homework assignment. <laughs> um, our our um, prayer book has, in order of importance, this was in the in the new way it was formatted. Um, the first thing that comes after your daily worship, which is morning prayer, evening prayer. It starts off with um, holy baptism. And when the authors of the group that put together this prayer book uh, in the mid-70s, having it published in 79, uh, they wanted to elevate significantly the visibility of holy baptism. And so they put it right up front as the first sacramental issue in our Book of Common Prayer. And that was a major change. And it was an issue that the, the committees that were put together to write this book really fought over whether that should um, take place. Now, it was believed in the 70s that new documentation had been found about the importance and instruction of baptism and that was being reflected in people's ideas to move it to a more important place in the prayer book, to have it first. There was a, uh, just to name one, there was a, a, a book that was written in the first or second second century, called the Didache, uh, which was a Greek. It was written in Greek, as as Holy Script uh, New Testament was, and uh, the Didache was instruction, which is literally what Didache means. Um, it was instruction for baptism. Now it's mentioned a lot in different letters and communications. But all of a sudden, it disappeared, and nobody knew where it was. And then in the, I believe it was the early part of the 20th century, it may have been the late part of the 19th century, uh, a Greek monk was going through archives and found 
the Didache. It had been misfiled. <laughs> and so it became available um, and is consistent with a lot of the traditions we pass down, just with more detail. So discoveries like that in modern uh, scholarship led to the, um, the prominence of baptism. Then they have Holy Eucharist second um, in the order in the prayer book. Um, and then we go into the other, um, the other sacraments. If you will, um, for those of you that have um, prayer books in front of you, Right after communion, we have what are called pastoral offices. We have reception and reaffirmation, uh, which is um, and confirmation. Before 1979, confirmation was a big deal. That's when children got to, at least in, in where I grew up, that's where you got to take your first communion. 413. 413, I'm sorry, thank you. Um, well, 1979 prayer book, the current one we use, turned all that upside down because the theology that was informing those who put together this book believed that we were members of Christ's holy church the minute that we were marked as Christ's own at baptism. And all I have to do is say that that little verse, you're marked as Christ's own forever, and the hair on the back of my neck stands up. And that's why you can see some children who come to the altar rail will receive the bread. And some children, you know, their parents will instruct them in the old way of, you know, just receiving a blessing. But the theology that informed that major move in this new prayer book was that that baby who's been baptized is just as much a member of Christ's church as Father Joe and I. Because we share that same holy baptism. But I, I can remember, I didn't take communion until I was 12. 12. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's how, again, we have another change uh, this prayer book. And these things were controversial, and they still are. Any questions, Emma? Yes. Five minutes. Okay. Well, the age of reason under common law is, and there are attorneys in the room, is roughly around seven. Is that, am I right? Attorneys? Do we have an attorney in the room? <laughs> okay, the, 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 the next sacramental sign that is under pastoral offices is, the, is marriage. Now, in the early church, uh, the church really didn't have a role in marriage, maybe in the first century or two. But it was a horrible, horrible situation that was going on in the relationship between man and woman uh, as they came together in marriage, uh, which was largely a governmental function or a familial function. 
And um, if I had enough goats, I could go and I could go to my wife's father and say, I've got 10 goats I'll give you for Mary Ellen. And he said, make it 11 and you got her. <laughs> uh, so it had to do with, with consent of the woman being married to make sure that we weren't actually trafficking in human beings. The church became involved in holy marriage, holy matrimony, formalized uh, rites to celebrate that. And that's when, when a priest marries a couple. He'll always begin with, Dear beloved, we've come together in the presence of God to witness, and so on. And the priest will go on, I require and charge you both, man and woman. He'll also charge the congregation, Do any of you know reason? why this man and this woman shouldn't be joined in holy matrimony. And you hold your... (laughs) And hope nobody raises a concern. But it goes back to that time when women weren't free to express their own desires. And it became almost a commercial enterprise. And the church inserted itself there. Any questions? No questions? You never had anybody stand up? No, but I knew a priest that did, and, and he, was, he was a mentor of mine. And he, it was a large wedding uh, in North Carolina. And, uh, I mean, 200 or so people present, and somebody objected. And he stopped it right then. He took the person into the sacristy, and they talked for a while. And he comes back out, and he finishes the wedding. Because he didn't have a good reason, at least in this priest's mind. But it never happened to me. Father Joe, has it ever happened to you? No. No. I always tell the bride and groom it's, it's better to take if they got any if they have any reasons, things to share, it's better to, better the night before. Yep. 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 Um, so the next piece, and I've got what, three minutes? Three about two. About two uh, I'll, I'll do it in two. Another sacrament is called the reconciliation of the penitent. And it's on page 447. Now, in our tradition, there are three ways that you can seek God's forgiveness. One is you can get down at your knees, on your knees at night, by your bedside, and you can ask God to forgive you, and you are forgiven. You also come to church on Sunday and we say a corporate confession together. And on behalf of God, the priest will get up and grant you absolution in God's name. But there's a third way, and this is the reconciliation of the penitent. uh, Confession. Um, And it is very similar to the Roman church, except it is not required because we have two other ways you can be forgiven. Uh, And you would come to a priest, and you would go through this little liturgy, and again the priest on behalf of God would grant you absolution. This is most often, in my experience as a priest, used when people cannot accept the fact that God has forgiven them. And they continue to refuse to accept that forgiveness and require a priest to acknowledge on God's behalf that they're forgiven. Does that make sense? 
that typically people who can't accept the fact that God has already forgiven them. And they carry around that burden like, you know, God didn't forgive me. It was really horrible. And they think they know more than God. They place themselves above God, actually by not accepting His forgiveness in the other ways. But it does happen. It's not a frequent thing that we use in the Episcopal Church. But it is, it is done. I have done it uh, many times. <coughs> and I think that's about our time. And we will pick up next week on ministration to the sick. And um, I would ask you, please, please, if you can't, just do a quick read through. I'm not asking you to memorize it or think heavy duty, but go through the catechism. And, and if you if you come back with questions, um, I'll also. Uh, before we finish, we have two more weeks in Advent. Um, I would also like to do the last um, Sunday. Um, I would like to take time and walk through the Holy Eucharist and look at the different pieces of our Eucharistic prayers and uh, talk about them and where they came from and what they mean to us uh, spiritually and theologically. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.